Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with yet another shooting atrocity in America. This time a six-year-old and her parents were shot by a neighbour after a basketball rolled into his yard. Joining us is John Donahue, a professor of law at Stanford Law School and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He has written numerous publications on gun control policy and is the author of Shooting Down the More Guns, Less Crime Hypothesis. We will discuss his article at The Atlantic, The Problem America Cannot Fix, The Public Supports Many Sensible Gun Measures, But Flaws in Our Democracy Make make Us Unable to Adopt Them, and assess whether public outrage could reach a point that would force the Supreme Court to deal with reality and politicians to ignore the NRA, say, after 100 or more Americans are mowed down by a mass shooter in one incident, now that gun massacres are almost a daily occurrence. Then, with the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Dick Durbin, sending a letter today to Chief Justice Roberts inviting him to testify about a code of ethics in response to the burgeoning scandal involving Justice Thomas, We'll examine what it will take for the Supreme Court to adopt an ethics regime that the rest of the judiciary is subject to. Joining us is Craig Holman, the Government Affairs Legislative Representative for Public Citizen, where he works on Capitol Hill on campaign finance and government ethics. Previously, he was a senior policy analyst at the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law. Then finally, we'll look into how Wall Street's drive to financialize every aspect of the economy with CEOs focused on stock prices rather than what they produce has derailed trains, harmed health care, bottlenecked supply chains, and made it harder for the U.S. military to supply Ukraine with ammunition, which is not a priority for the military-industrial complex. Joining us is Mike Lofgren, who has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And we'll discuss his article at Common Dreams, Free Market Dogma Creates Disasters from East Palestine to Ukraine. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is John Donahue, who's a professor of law at Stanford Law School and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He has written numerous publications on gun control policy and is the author of Shooting Down the More Guns, Less Crime Hypothesis. And he has an article at The Atlantic, The Problem America Cannot Fix. The public support many sensible gun measures, but flaws in our democracy make us unable to adopt them. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Donahue. Good to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And you've got something like 90% of the public supporting stronger background checks. And even NRA members uh, apparently support that. But even even something like that doesn't get any political traction. How many more massacres do we have to have? And I think just lately, I think people are, are certainly realizing how innocent mistakes like pressing the wrong doorbell or driving up the wrong driveway or getting into a car that you think is yours could end up with you being shot. That's, I think, resonating with a lot of people. But what happens? Nothing. This is the the bizarre thing. No matter how many people get mowed down or innocents get slaughtered, 
we don't seem to make any political headway. So is there any light at the end of the tunnel here, John? It's a dark road right now. I will say that, you know, there there are states like New York and California that are trying to move in the right direction. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court is on an active mission to eliminate many of the gun safety measures that are implemented in New York and California and that have made a difference in restricting, uh, uh, you know, these very, very unfortunate situations. So does it all go back to Antonin Scalia and the Heller decision? Yeah, the Heller decision was a monumental error. I think uh, John Paul Stevens, uh, remember a Republican and Republican appointed justice to the Supreme Court when he left the court, he said, unquestionably, the single worst decision during my 34 years on the bench was the decision in Heller that granted this individual right to have a gun. And uh, that is sort of the original sin in this story. And unfortunately, uh, last June, the Supreme Court expanded the Heller decision, which had only granted the right to have a gun in the home, to have uh, a gun anywhere that you travel. So this has been a a very, very unfortunate extension of what, uh, as I said, Justice Stevens considered the worst decision in his 34 years on the bench. But the Bruin decision last summer basically said that law-abiding responsible citizens should be able to carry weapons both at home and in the public. And an FBI analysis, as your article points out, an FBI analysis of the 55 active shooters over age 18 found that 65% of them uh, had no adult convictions prior to the massacres that they inflicted on public in public places. So these are law-abiding citizens that show up as mass murderers. So, so much for the Bruin decision. I mean... Yeah, it's it's a very troubling thing, and and listening to the Supreme Court and sometimes uh, some some members of the gun lobby, uh, it's almost like a uh, uh, an otherworldly response when they talk about well, what could be the problem as long as the you know res- law-abiding responsible citizens have guns, because as you note. Uh, uh, most of these mass shooters met that definition according to uh, gun lobby uh, announcements and now the Supreme Court announcement that unless you have a prohibition currently in place, you're free to buy a gun on the way to the mass murder. And that's the key, right, is access to guns and particularly military-style assault weapons. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's it really is almost fanciful to hear the arguments that uh, because the Second Amendment was passed in 1791, people should be allowed to have assault rifles with high-capacity magazines in 2023. Um, You could not have a mass shooting problem in 1791 because it would take so long to load a musket. but now you can fire away with the most lethal weaponry in, in seconds and do enormous damage. I mean, we, we have seen mass shootings where the shooter was killed within 30 seconds, and yet uh, scores of people have already been injured or killed. Uh, so it's, it's completely uh, irrational to say, uh, you know, because the Second Amendment was adopted in 1791, you can't restrict uh, uh, this type of lethal weaponry today. And as your article points out, Don Donahue, the idea of increasing punishment against uh, these mass killers, I mean, the 18-year-old Buffalo shooter uh, last May who killed 10 people with an assault rifle, he had written prior to his the massacre that he conducted, he had written, I am well aware that my actions will effectively ruin my life. If I am not killed during the attack, I will go to prison for an inevitable life sentence. So, so much for deterrence. Again, you have the problem of people that have a predisposition to this kind of violence, but you wouldn't have mass casualties but for the access to these weapons. 
Yeah, well, I mean, one of the worst cases that I, I happened to work on was the Sutherland Springs uh, Baptist Church killing, where the killer stood outside the church and fired 254 bullets at sort of head level at the pews of the parishioners who were inside the Baptist church, and he ended up killing 26 people. Um, this is an unimaginable level of violence uh, that, you know, sensible states have tried to address, such as California and New York. Uh, and at one point, we did have a federal assault weapon ban from 1994 to 2004, uh, and, and yet... Uh, as soon as that ban was allowed to lapse, uh, we, we saw a very sharp upward trend in these mass shootings and, and with no sign of relenting. So Scalia's Heller decision turned the Second Amendment on its head, putting the cart before the horse. But yeah. the preamble is a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. Now, why don't we basically emphasize that? Is there any way to, to redress this Supreme Court decision and put the Second Amendment in its rightful place? Because that's the real issue. We are, are neither secure. We can't go to churches, schools, malls without being massacred. Kids can't go to school without the fear of being of parents and not seeing their kids again and they have to do all these drills and stuff. So we know we're not free, and yep. we're not secure. So can't we somehow demand that all of this nonsense about the Second Amendment that these right-wingers and NRA types all took, keep saying, you know, we're believers in the Second Amendment. Well, let's revisit the Second Amendment, not Scalia's version of it, but the original version. Yeah, what was scandalous about Scalia's opinion is he always patted himself on the back that he was an originalist and he, he was faithful to the text, and yet no decision in constitutional history has ever been as violative of the text for the reason you suggest. Uh, the whole purpose of the amendment was to enable a well-regulated militia to come to the defense of the country. Um, and so the idea that this requires... Uh, uh, you know, every 18-year-old in the country who uh, wants to have an AR-15 should be allowed to have it is is literally absurd, but completely counter to the very rationale of the amendment. So we have two problems. One, how do we get rid of this uh, interpretation? And so that's going to take either expanding the court with judges who have a different view or over time uh, a change in the composition of the court. But then we have the second problem that, uh, uh, I mean, it would be great if we can get rid of this interpretation. That would at least allow states like New York and California to protect their citizens uh, to a greater extent uh, than would otherwise be the case. But we also have the problem that the uh, Senate is uh, uh, in a position where the Republicans can block any uh, gun safety measures. And, and so there has to be a, a political change as well. Uh, it, it is shocking that NRA members themselves would be much more supportive of gun safety regulation than uh, the Republican Party is right now. And, and that, I think, shows uh, the problems with our democracy at this point, which is a, a, a an additional serious problem in addition to all the bodies and the fear that gun violence has now created. So is this a problem that it's no longer your father's or your grandfather's Republican Party has become so radical? Because as your article quotes Ronald Reagan, he once said that, quote, there's no reason why on the street today a citizen should be carrying loaded weapons. Guns are a ridiculous way to solve problems that have to be solved among people of goodwill. And as you also point out, in the state of Texas, Texas banned carrying guns outside of the home for protection from 1871 till 1995. My God, that's news, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and, and one sees that uh, the, the states that have tried to be protective of their citizens, like California and New York, have done much better in 
restricting uh, uh, the murder rate than Texas has, which used to have a lower rate than California and now has a considerably higher murder rate and uh, a 75 percent higher murder rate than uh, the state of New York. So the move for California to the guns for everyone approach uh, has uh, you know, evidently been very harmful for them. So as we endure mass shootings almost every day and you just dread the idea that tomorrow's headline is going to be another mass shooting somewhere, they just come so regularly. You've done a lot of research, John, and I just wonder at what point, is there a breaking point? Is there just too much? I mean, you think about the guy in in, uh, Las Vegas that just from a high-rise casino just mowed down people at a concert trying to score, you know, break some kind of record. I mean, I don't know what's more outrageous. And killing young kids in schools is just so heinous. So you don't see a breaking point in terms of of the public outrage versus the stubborn obstinacy of Republican lawmakers in the grip of the NRA. Because we just saw that debate, in a way, play out in the state house in Tennessee with these young kids protesting this uh, white majority, white supermajority of lawmakers who are all in the pocket of the NRA. Yeah, it's a grim picture. I I had written that piece uh, for the Atlantic and they decided to hold it for the next mass shooting before they published it because, you know, there's one coming and, you know, you hate to say this, but, uh, there will be another one in the next couple of weeks, and we'll be dealing with that. Um, and and so this is a problem that cannot get better without, uh, you know, effective governmental action. Uh, and um, you know, right now the the Republican Party is is not willing to take any federal action, and the Supreme Court is trying to roll back the action taken by states like California and New York that do try to be protective. So. We're, we're in a bad way. Uh, but as you say, the, the public is getting more and more fed up with this. Uh, and it, it is just going to be interesting to see when that tipping point comes. I, I think it will come because uh, the, the growing lethality, uh, coupled with the fact that more and more of these mass shooters learn from each other and try to implement new strategies to kill more people. Uh, at some point, we're going to see 100 people killed, uh, maybe 200 people killed in a mass shooting. Um, and I do think at, at some point, the American people uh, will rise up, but, but we're not there yet. Well, I recall after the Sandy Hook massacre, President Obama came to tears and he yep. was the president, and he was doing yep. everything he could, and he couldn't get it passed, and, and that brought him to tears. Yeah, o- Obama made a, a bad mistake in, in one sense, uh, and it's sort of reflective of his personality. The Sandy Hook occurred, and he put together a commission to consider what appropriate steps should be taken. All of that took time, and the public's interest wanes while the gun lobby remains, you know, adamant and firm. Uh, if if uh, Obama had acted more rapidly, uh, at least some major steps, I think, could have been achieved. But now we're in a much worse position in terms of the composition of the uh, Congress. So it, it is harder right now. Uh, and, and indeed, you know, the, the, the next federal election uh, promises to be a, a difficult one for, for de- the Democrats with more Democratic seats uh, up for uh, re-election. So it, it, it's, it's, it is going to take a change in the minds. Uh, t- today in the New Republic, uh, a very conservative uh, uh, gun proponent said, uh, uh, you know, the Second Amendment is killing us and we have to turn away from the Republican Party until they take the appropriate steps to address this problem. And I think that change of mind is what is going to be necessary if we're going to uh, make some headway in the near future. Well, I don't understand why the Democrats can't 
sees the fact that 90% of the public is in favour of at least more sensible background checks and work from there. They've got the public on their side. These characters in the Republican House that send out Christmas cards of their entire families bristling with assault rifles is obscene. I mean, they're relics. The young kids in Tennessee showed us that there's this massive grassroots movement out there. I just don't understand why that can't be mobilized by the Democratic Party. And that's where the change has to come. And as you point out earlier, John, uh, you got to have the political power in order to change the makeup of the Supreme Court. There's no hope to change the minds of those arch conservatives. Yeah, and, and it's very it's very puzzling to me what some of these uh, uh, extremists on the Supreme Court are thinking. Uh, it's very obvious uh, what the consequences of their decisions are, and yet they seem to be you know, oblivious to those consequences or at least disregard those consequences, which is very troubling. Well, John Donahue, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Very good to talk to you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with John Donahue, who is a professor of law at Stanford Law School and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's written numerous publications on gun control policy and is the author of Shooting Down the More Guns, Less Crime Hypothesis. And he has an article at The Atlantic, The Problem America Cannot Fix. The public supports many sensible gun measures, but flaws in our democracy make us unable to adopt them. I'm going to take a brief station break and back looking into a letter sent by the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee today to the Chief Justice Roberts, inviting him to testify on the need for a code of ethics at the Supreme Court. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Craig Holman, the Government Affairs Legislative Representative for Public Citizen, where he works on Capitol Hill on campaign finance and government ethics. Previously, he was a senior policy analyst at the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Craig Holman. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Craig. And there's been a lot of focus on Clarence Thomas the Supreme Court Justice and his billionaire buddy, Harlan Crow, since the ProPublica story broke a week ago. And it seems that at least there's a little movement in the sense that today the chairman of the, the Senate Judiciary Committee, Dick Durbin, sent a letter to Chief Justice John Roberts inviting him to testify before the committee. So Let's begin with that. Is there any chance that Roberts will take up that invitation? Um, Roberts is a little more reasonable than Clarence Thomas, so it's possible. Uh, you know, it's it's an effort by Durbin to try to reach out and get some sort of accountability on ethics for the Supreme Court itself. Both Schumer and Durbin have been reaching out to Clarence Thomas earlier, ever since March, trying to get Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from issues involving the January 6th insurrection because of his wife's close involvement uh, with Mark Meadows uh, about that insurrection. And Clarence Thomas has steadfastly refused to do so. Uh, And so this is uh, stepping up the effort to try to reach out to the Chief Justice and see if he might be willing to do something about this. You see, the the real crux of the problem is there is no code of ethics that applies to the Supreme Court. Even though the Supreme Court and the Judiciary Committees have imposed a code of ethics on all judges throughout the federal judiciary, the Supreme Court has exempted themselves uh, from that uh, code of ethics. And so, you know, these these scandals, the latest scandals and the ones particularly focused on Clarence Thomas, have 
breathe new life into the effort to try to get the Supreme Court to accept a code of ethics for itself. We'll see if it works. Well, apparently, Craig, even Antonin Scalia didn't think it was a good idea to take money from friends to travel, etc. So what happened there? Obviously, without any rules, the justices are free to do what they want, apparently. But was there ever a kind of regime of amongst equals that maybe it's not a good idea? It really hasn't received serious consideration at the Supreme Court just because there was a code of ethics for the rest of the judiciary. But it is changing now. Uh, first of all, uh, literally about half a year ago, news broke that even though there's a code of ethics for federal judges, many of them were not living by that code of ethics, and they were accepting gifts as, from persons who had business pending before their own courts. And then it hit a new plateau when we find the same thing going on with the Supreme Court justices to an extraordinary degree. I mean, uh, Clarence Thomas has, has become wealthy uh, from gifts from, uh, from Harlan Crow, for instance. And, uh, you know, that just, that just uh, points out the, what happens when you don't have a code of ethics in place. So that's given, you know, that's that's really given new life to this idea of the code of ethics, along with other reforms for the for the Supreme Court, including term limits and even potentially court expansion. Well, I, I can't imagine the Chief Justice is going to agree with either of those two. <laughs> well, the code of ethics is what's really uh, in play right now. But when it comes to Congress, there's uh, what's called the Judiciary Act, and it has roughly about 60 co-sponsors in the House, and that would expand the size of the Supreme Court by four justices. But that's something that's going to be a long-term battle, to try to get some ideological balance back to the court. Right now, what we're focusing on is getting uh, a code of ethics to regulate these conflicts of interest and the gifts that are flowing to Supreme Court justices. And I do want to point out, it isn't just Clarence Thomas. I mean, there are other justices who are also accepting gifts. Well, isn't the Chief Justice's wife uh, runs a very wealthy law practice? Uh, Yes, indeed. And that makes it particularly difficult, though, as to how to regulate uh, a code of ethics for the Supreme Court justice. Uh, You can see why why this has been such a difficult road, because the Supreme Court really deals with all issues all across the board. And uh, if there's a code of ethics that makes them have to recuse, depending on income or gifts that the justices or their spouses receive, you can see why there's a reluctance amongst the Supreme Court to accept that code of ethics. But Clarence Thomas has just abused it to such an extent. I think it's become inevitable that there has to be a code of ethics applying to the justices. So I guess Thomas himself is immune from criticism, right? He's pretty brazen. And if he ever says anything in response to questions, he labels it as a, as a kind of witch hunt going back to his confirmation hearings when he described uh, questions about his sexual harassment of Anita Hill, the uh, high-tech lynching, I think, is what he described it as, wasn't it? Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, you know, Justice Thomas and, and actually several of the Supreme Court justices uh, keep trying to blow this these scandals off as being witch hunts uh, by you know those who disagree with with the conservative the new conservative slants of these Supreme Court justices, but you know this this is just taking it too far. I mean uh, you know granted a lot of people uh, progressives especially are offended by how Mitch Senator Mitch McConnell's packed the courts. Uh, with with Trump appointees especially, and you know, so there's a lot of concern about trying to get some ideological balance back on the court. But top 
of the agenda is just a simple code of ethics. Uh, either refuse to accept gifts uh, from outside sources, or if you are going to accept some gifts from outside sources, make sure you recuse yourself from business that affects those those gift givers. And has there been any conflict of interest vis-a-vis Harlan Crow uh, in terms of cases before the court that would interest him that Clarence Thomas didn't recuse himself from? Well, Harlan Crow is a is dedicated to very conservative causes, you know, supporting especially the whole the whole MAGA movement, and that is really what Harlan Crow has been trying to achieve on the court, and and he with Mitch McConnell have succeeded at doing that. Now, Harlan Crow, to my knowledge, doesn't personally have any specific case pending before the court. But his objective is to turn it into a conservative, an ideologically conservative court. And he's succeeded in doing that. Now, where the genuine conflict of interest comes from that uh, Schumer and Durbin and others are calling for recusal is Jenny Thomas's uh, work with Mark Meadows in supporting the January 6th insurrection. That is a direct conflict of interest. And so Schumer and Durbin are asking uh, asking the justice to recuse himself from any cases that involve the insurrection. That's where met- the real conflict of interest is. Right, but Craig, you, you just mentioned the aim of Schumer and the Democrats to try and bring back some balance to the judiciary since it's been so heavily stacked to the right by Trump, particularly the Supreme Court. But that's now stalled because of Senator Dianne Feinstein. I mean, what, the largest state in the country, population-wise, has two senators and one of them is out, whereas, you know, some of these other small states like Wyoming have two senators with a population the size of, well, they only have one, they only have one Congress representative for Wyoming. So it gives you an idea of the disparity already built into the system. But on top of that... We have an absentee senator who's key to the Senate Judiciary Committee, and Schumer tried to get the Republicans to help out the Democrats to have a replacement for Dianne Feinstein on the uh, Judiciary Committee, but they refused to help that. So how are the Democrats going to rebalance the Supreme Court if they can't get their judicial nominee through? And Feinstein is not apparently in any hurry to return to Washington. Well, that does show the problems that, uh, you know, the, this polarized Congress uh, has. Uh, it, really is, it really is a sad statement by the Senate Republicans uh, to block a temporary appointment to replace Feinstein. Feinstein is, you know, she's not, she's not well, and she's, she's sick. She's got to stay home. She made a very reasonable offer to have someone else take her place on a temporary basis until she recovers and can return. Uh, very reasonable. But the Republicans see, sense that if there is a replacement, uh, Democrats are going to be able to get some more judges appointed to try to offset the wave of appointees that came from Trump. And so in this this sorry state of partisan polarization there, the Republicans refuse to allow Feinstein that privilege. And that's that's a sad statement of our Congress. Well, do you know, Craig, how it is that the Supreme Court was exempt when they brought in the Code of Conduct for the federal judiciary? How did it happen that they, the Supreme Court became exempt from that? Uh, just very simply, the Supreme Court exempted themselves. They uh, agreed to uh, the, the uh, Judicial Council uh, setting up a code of ethics for all lower courts, but they felt that they had to be above that sort of uh, code of ethics because they deal with so many issues and so many cases that cover everything. Uh, so they felt justified by exempting themselves from it. You know, they're also, the Supreme Court really is 
the uh, what shall we call it the king of the judiciary system and so they determine right and wrong for the judiciary and uh, you know if if the Supreme Court justices wanted to exempt themselves from a code of ethics uh, they felt they have that authority now it's it's going to take public pressure uh, to try to basically embarrass the Supreme Court into doing the right thing and accepting a code of ethics for themselves. And that's what the Durbin and Schumer are attempting to do. If they can get Justice Roberts to uh, testify or even to, you know, rebuke testifying, it does bring greater public pressure on the problems of the Supreme Court. And that's that's what they're trying to do. They're, you know, basically, you know, they're trying to embarrass the Supreme Court into doing the right thing. But no way you can embarrass Thomas, right? No, no, they, they can't. They, they, they tried, and I, I think they're now focusing now on, uh, on Justice Roberts, the Chief Justice. Uh-huh. But there's rumors that he's not really in charge, that this new far-right majority is essentially run by Thomas and Alito. Is that what you've heard? Uh, We do know that the Trump appointees march in lockstep independently. But, uh, you know, Roberts is the chief justice and if anyone can sit down with, uh, you know, those very conservative justices and try to try to get uh, speak some reason to them, it would have to be Chief Justice Roberts. And how real is the threat of expanding the court? In other words, could that be used as leverage to get them to behave better? That's what we are trying to do. I mean, even Public Citizen has now come out in support of expanding the the court. You know, that idea of expanding the court used to be considered a a very radical idea. You know, Uh, it it failed under FDR. And ever since then, you know, especially, especially lawyers and others have never, you know, never embraced that concept. They consider that you know, just too political. But after uh, after Mitch McConnell stacked the court and just packed it, uh, you know, even public citizen has joined in uh, saying, you know, yeah, okay, we've got to try bringing some ideological balance back to this court. And this court keeps coming out with decisions that are very unpopular among the American public. And the more they keep doing that, the more they uh, ignore conflicts of interest amongst themselves, the more mainstream this idea of expanding the size of the court has become. And yes, it can be used just uh, as a threat to try to get the Supreme Court to recognize that they are now growing increasingly unpopular and they're losing credibility. And so they've got to do something to try to restore uh, some sort of integ- sense of integrity among the American public. And the very least of that would be passing a code of ethics for themselves. You know, by the way, that idea of court expansion, I mean, even though FDR wasn't able to get it through, it achieved its objective. Uh, back in during the New Deal, the, uh, the Supreme Court was a very conservative court that kept striking down all the New Deal programs. And FDR started pushing this legislation to expand the size of the court, and it was passing. And then once once it became clear it was passing, there was a, one of the conservative justices who happened to be also named Justice Roberts back during the New Deal court flipped sides and started upholding all the same New Deal legislation that they had previously struck down. That, uh, you know, produced the phrase, a switch in time saved nine. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's see whether that phrase will come back into um, play here. And I thank you for joining us. Sure, it was a pleasure. 
And again, I've been speaking with Craig Holman, who's the Government Affairs Legislative Representative for Public Citizen, where he works on Capitol Hill on campaign finance and government ethics. Previously, he was a senior policy analyst at the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how Wall Street's drive to financialize every aspect of the economy has derailed trains, harmed healthcare, bottleneck supply chains, and made it harder for the U.S. military to supply Ukraine with ammunition, which is not a priority for the military-industrial complex. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, democracy is coming to the U.S.A. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mike Lofkin, who has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Free Market Dogma Creates Disasters from East Palestine to Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike Lofgren. Good to be here. So I want to talk to you about uh, how the free market is impacting the U.S. military and financial aid to Ukraine. But in the broader context of what you've written here, the derailment of the Norfolk Southern freight line and the other example you give is the N95 masks in terms of Chinese supplies and the whole supply chain problems, etc. So just give us a brief summary of why you've lumped those apparently different incidents or issues together. Well, indeed, they're very disparate. Uh, uh, a railroad, uh, masks in a hospital, and artillery shells on the Ukrainian front. But despite the fact that they're so disparate, uh, they're all symptoms of the same problem, which is this kind of free market capitalist dogma of lean inventory, just-in-time delivery, uh, cutting your personnel to the bone, cutting R&D, cutting everything, uh, apparently except the CEO's uh, stock options. And as a result... Um, there's a shell shortage in Ukraine. Uh, there's safety problems and also uh, prompt delivery problems with railroads. That was a problem during the, the supply chain uh, crisis, which in some respects has not been solved. It's still going on uh, with uh, certain things like high-end uh, chips in, in things like cars. Uh, the average price of a new car is over $45,000 in America. And that's a tremendous increase, an increase of over $10,000 uh, just since the uh, pandemic began. Um, and then also uh, the uh, apparent crisis is over with hospitals uh, as far as COVID, but they still have a shortage of beds. And anytime there's anything like flu or some ramp up in a problem, uh, they're going to be scrambling because it's this, this same mentality that seems to be battening on to the, you know, every uh, realm of human activity, whether or not it is, appropriate uh, for the free market or not. It's one thing if Lowe's and Home Depot are competing over the price of two-by-fours, but you can't really comparison shop if you get a heart attack at three in the morning. Uh, you go to wherever the hospital is closest and you get there as quick as you can uh, and 
trust to lock. Likewise, uh, it's a real question of whether you can have free market principles in uh, in supplying the military, because uh, for the last 30 years, it's been outsourcing wherever they can, uh, base closing to reduce supposed redundant capacity, uh, and things like this. And now we're finding, uh, well, we got shortages of these things just to supply uh, a kind of mid-level uh, war uh, between Russia and a third party that we're supplying. We would be we would run out of things in about one or two days if there were some crisis with China, which is uh, a true superpower that could launch an offensive against us on many fronts. Uh, yet we seem to uh, believe in this whole lean inventory uh, mythology uh, of the free market, and that's really set us back. So Wall Street's drive to financialize every aspect of the economy has led to trains derailing, it's harmed health care, it's bottlenecked supply chains, and it's made it harder for the U.S. military to aid its allies, in particular Ukraine. So let's talk then about Wall Street's drive to financialize. So the key then, Mike Lofkin, is that the CEOs of hospitals and and uh, Norfolk Southern, etc., and the military contractors and and the military industrial complex behemoths like Lockheed Martin, etc., their CEOs are more. Uh, how much of, are they essentially told what to do by Wall Street, or they just know they have to please Wall Street? They don't necessarily have to. Uh, well, if they take they're, care of their if, own company, if they're a company that issues stock and all the major defense contractors are, uh, that's an, on the CEO's mind, just as it is on uh, the mind of the CEO of any company uh, that's a public company issuing stock. Uh, the, the next quarter's results are key, and uh, it also not only redounds to a better uh, quarterly report, uh, these people get lots of stock options, and when they hit their numbers, uh, they're rewarded. And it's a rather perverse system because uh, it looks for short-term profits at the expense of the long-term. So we learned that, actually, from the Norfolk Southern, because the management there didn't appear to be interested in the issues involving rail. They didn't listen to their workers, their specialists, uh, the people that knew about the problems that were causing these derailments. They just pushed them harder and harder to meet these targets. And then, then in the airline industry, you know, Southwest, their new CEO is, is like these Wall Street guys. He's a complete numbers cruncher. Whereas the other previous guy was was in touch with everybody, you know, in the workforce because he actually cared about the business he was in. So has Wall Street changed corporate culture where you have people running these big corporations that aren't really interested in the business that they're in? Oh, that's absolutely the case. I mean, we see this uh, most uh, vividly with a company that was kind of, you know, if it ain't Boeing, I ain't going, used to be the thing. Uh, Boeing was a very famous and very reliable and renowned uh, uh, aircraft manufacturer uh, because they had people uh, like Allen, who was the guy who designed the 747 and made it made it work. He was an airplane guy. But in the 90s, uh, during the dot-com bubble, uh, when they moved from Washington, where their production facilities were, to Chicago, and they put number crunchers in charge, that was the beginning of the decline of Boeing. 
you had all kinds of problems uh, with getting the 787 online. Uh, the 737 MAX was a real safety problem because they thought they could just slap these bigger engines on an airframe that was essentially uh, more than 50 years old and uh, get it certified by a sort of compliant FAA, even though uh, it created center of gravity problems that had to be uh, taken care of by software because human beings wouldn't be agile enough to do it. Well, the problem is when the software isn't mature. These are things that would not have happened if true aerospace engineers were calling the shots. Sure, and the, and the 737 MAX is still a problem. I would never fly in the damn thing. I don't know about you. You know, if, if the thing has a uh, center of gravity problem, everything that's going to fix it is just going to be a Band-Aid. Right. So let's talk about the problems in, in Ukraine. Um, they're supposed to have a planning for a big offensive. It's kind of a lull at the moment, but the Russians fire something between twenty and 30,000 sh uh, shells a day. The Ukrainians have to hold their powder and fire much less, maybe a tenth, and they're still running out of shells. So what's the situation in terms of the U.S. infantry? I take it that there's only one factory in the U.S. that makes these shells right. and it's over 100 years old? Right, it's this 100-year-old factory in Scranton where they forged these things. And uh, we used up about 10 years or more of inventory uh, of production to supply them. We supplied them about 1.5 million shells so far. Now, that sounds like an awful lot, but uh, any... Uh, English listener or member of the Commonwealth will remember the Battle of the Somme. That was over a hundred years ago. The British fired off uh, one and a half million shells over about four days. So high-intensity warfare is a big industrial thing. And uh, DOD, which everybody thinks is this sort of Machiavellian uh, uh, Warcrafter, they seem to have forgotten this. And they haven't thought about, well, you know, what about second sources? They're trying to get another second source online, but that takes a, takes a while. Um, these things are forged. Forging out of steel is a uh, fairly laborious process. Could they be precision cast? There are uh, great advancements in precision casting lately. Um, could, is that a possibility? Has anyone thought of it? Has anyone in the Pentagon considered easier ways to do it? I don't see any evidence of that. It's just sort of uh, the status quo. Right. Well, this war in Ukraine has been compared to World War One in terms of long lines of trench warfare, a thousand plus kilometers long. But your article, Mike Lofkin, points out that the replenishment time for munitions sent to Ukraine, the Javelin anti-tech missile, is 5.5 to 8 years to replenish stocks, the HIMARS guided rocket 2.5 to 3 years, the Stinger anti-aircraft missile 6.5 to an incredible 18 years. And as far as I know, the Pentagon, you know, is barely gearing up, even on the artillery shells. The same with the Germans, apparently. And NATO inventories are very low as well, aren't they? That's why they're going to South Korea. That's correct. Uh, probably because uh, the fact that Kim Jong-un sitting there uh, over the DMZ, just about 30 miles from Seoul, that tends to concentrate their minds. So they, they have... Uh, uh, higher stocks of things than uh, people in Europe who basically, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, tended to buy into the uh, Francis Fukuyama uh, belief that it was the end of history and everybody could go to sleep. 
Well, they went to sleep, that's for sure. But now they're waking up, it appears. And do you think that, you know, the U.S. military-industrial complex and NATO can supply the Ukrainians, as particularly as they prepare for a massive offensive where they're going to be using more and more munitions? Well, can. They certainly can um, if they want to and if they have the right ideas to. Um, it's just I haven't seen a lot, a lot of evidence that they're moving a great deal faster. Um, and I think it's important to remember the center of gravity in this conflict is to some degree within the United States. We know that the Ukrainians are going to fight, you know, to the extent they can, as long as they have weapons. The real center of gravity is the willingness and ability of the United States to supply weapons and also to use its leadership and essentially to provide cover for the Europeans to do likewise. That's why in cyberspace, uh, the battlefield is here in many respects. Uh, we've seen the FBI and the Justice Department announcing arrests uh, just in the last few days of people who were suborned by the Russians uh, to create kind of disinformation campaigns in this country. Well, just in closing, it's just, a, you know, obviously going back to the corporate mentality and the influence of Wall Street over corporate America, and particularly over the defense contractors and the military industrial complex, at the end of the day, that is the root of the problem, right, Mike? That they, right. They want to build these gold-plated heavy ticket items like the F-35 and that's where all the money goes but they forget about the rest of the stuff down the chain uh, the nuts and bolts stuff and then at the end of the day it turns out to be more important particularly when you're fighting a war as the Ukrainians are learning absolutely and uh, as you you and uh, listeners know conservatives always uh lean on the fact of how much they uh, revere the Constitution. Well, there's uh, provisions in the Constitution that talk about arsenals and dockyards as public property. And base closure closed down a lot of uh, repair depots, shipyards, arsenals, and so forth. And maybe it's time to revitalize that maybe national defense, there's something inherent about it that you shouldn't trust uh, all of national defense to private companies. Well, Mark Lofkin, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Mike Lofkin, who has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Free Market Dogma Creates Disasters from East Palestine to Ukraine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. 
and I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by hand.